We're working our way through the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. We know that it was written to Jewish Christians, and the writer is trying to get them to stay strong to the finish. They started well. I think we all understand that it's one thing to start well. It's another thing to finish well, and that's what the writer is trying to encourage his readers to do. So far, we've learned a couple of things. If we're going to not only begin the race, but persevere in it, what the writer would have us to understand that we need to listen to what God says. And it's one of God's central features is that he is self-revealing. Again, God's ways are different than our ways. And so if we are going to understand anything about him, it is because he reveals himself to us. And that's what the writer indicates, that God is self-revealing. And what we've learned as well, that's a little bit tricky, that God reveals himself in different ways, by different means, and through different messengers. Uh, God revealed himself from Mount Sinai, the writer has indicated in the first chapter, through angels, which is a little bit surprising, because that's not what the text indicates directly, but it's what Paul indicates and the New Testament writers indicate, in the way that if the president sends an ambassador to a foreign nation, that ambassador speaks with the authority of the president, and it's like the president himself goes. And so what we are, what it indicates then is that God spoke through angels from Mount Sinai, and he has spoken through his son from Mount Calvary, which is a clearer reflection of what God is like. In speaking to mankind, God could have done it any way he chose. He could have done it so that we receive loudspeaker messages from on high at different times and booming voices. God could have communicated with us that way. But that's not the way he has chosen to do so. God chooses to reveal himself, to transmit his message through spiritual beings who communicate to human beings. And human, one human, Moses, one human and divine, Jesus. Um, Long ago, God told Abraham that his offspring would be those to and through whom God would reveal himself to the world that those couriers who transmit his message would be children of Abraham, sons of Israel. They would be Jews. Uh, Jewish couriers, we'll see, have paid a price in fulfilling that office of being God's messengers. Look what it says in Hebrews Hebrews 2.10. It's in your worship folder. I'm going to read a couple of verses. We'll work our way through this. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. 
That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. It talks about God making the author of salvation perfect through suffering. It talks about he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified both have the same father. It's important to understand that those words have a particular meaning. The word perfect is not being used morally here. So when it says should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering, the the word there is not meaning sinless. The word perfect is a word used to describe those who were trained to serve in the temple. It's a very specific word. And so if you were then called out, because if you were a Jew and were a Levite, and you were subjected to this training process, once you had been trained, you would be described as having been made perfect perfected. You wouldn't be sinless, but you would be in a position to be able to serve God. That's the sense that those who served God, being called out from among the Jews to speak on his behalf, they received extensive training. And once this training was complete, they were perfected to serve God. Um, They were equipped to serve God. The word sanctified has the same sense. Sanctified is literally the process of setting something apart for divine use. If there are a number of things here, and I take one of those things, and I say, and I'm God, and and so I say, I'm going to use this, the process of selecting out that thing would be sanctifying that thing, setting it apart. It's not only applies to things, it applies to people. So those who are sanctified are those who have been, you might see it as de-secularized. Here's that which is secular, and if I de-secularize it, I make it something that is now going to be used specifically for a divine purpose. And I think what we don't always see clearly, but I think the Bible testifies to, I've mentioned it from time to time, and it feels important to me. It's it's that the first Jewish Christians were sanctified so that they could reflect light to us Gentiles. That tends to be dismissed, and I'm not exactly sure why. But the Bible doesn't go from God dealing with Jews to God dealing with Christians. There are a bridge people. The first individuals who respond to the gospel were Jews. The apostles were Jewish. And so what we're to understand then, and you might say, Mike, what are we making this big? But it, I think it makes a difference. You know what God has done? He said that he would speak to the world through the children of Abraham. Now, God's intent was that we would hear the good news. 
And in order to do that, what he has done is he has perfected and sanctified individuals to and through whom he could make sure that we understood that the new covenant was available. And those individuals were Jewish Christians. God announced 700 years earlier than Jesus came that this would be the case. Look what it says in Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about 700 plus years prior to Jesus coming. What he writes, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forever. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen about you. So what God promises is that the world that's in darkness, because no one is speaking for God, God says, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to put my spirit in the Redeemer, and the Redeemer is Jesus. And it says, but not only in him, in the Redeemer's children and in the children of the children of the Redeemer, what God says, there will always be someone to speak on my behalf so that we could understand the message that God communicates to us. Via spirit influence, God then, I guess the way we would understand this, set apart, perfected, and sanctified messengers to and through whom he would speak his message to the world. Um, This process, we understand, was painful. Those who were selected out were exposed to difficult circumstances in order that they might be perfected and sanctified. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 4. It's in your worship folder. It describes how those God selects out are treated. Here's what it says. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown, Paul writes, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul makes a distinguishing, a differentiation between us and you. Death is at work in us. Life is at work in you. Those are different treatments. Would you agree? Who is the us and who is the you? Don't you think that's an important question to be able to answer? Death is at work in us. Some, they were afflicted in every way. Who is he talking about? You know, I think he's talking about himself, Paul, and his entourage, and Jewish Christians in general. They were, I would say, I think Bible indicates they were the jars of clay. Those to and through whom God would communicate his message to the world. And in being those vessels, they were subject to difficult treatment. I think that's what Paul is indicating here. Um, those to and through whom God reveals himself are 
They need to know some things. They need to be trained and dealt with in a way. Um, Terry is a postal carrier, has been one. His son, Travis, is as well. There's things that they need to know as postal carriers that postal recipients don't need to know. We depend on them to know what needs to happen so that we can get the mail. We don't need to understand all the protocol, all the deals. And in the same way, God identifies individuals to and through whom he would dispatch the message. They receive difficult treatment. They're jars of clay. We get the message, and we get the message because God has dispatched some so that we would hear about him. And these individuals, to and through whom God reveals himself, have a greater accountability. There are two different in a household. There's the master of the house. And then when you were a homeowner, a you were the owner of a, a not just a house, but a business, and you would have servants. And what you would do in this house, you would pick a servant to be a steward. And the way, let's say Macy is the steward. Let's say I call Macy out and I'm, you're all my servants and she is the steward. Now what will happen, I will want to give things to you. But I won't give them to you directly. I will take a servant and cause that servant to have additional responsibility. Let's say Macy is that. So what I would do is give what I want you to get to Macy. And her responsibility now becomes to make sure that these things get to you. Now, she has additional responsibility. There's a heavier weight. Um, And it's important to know. Because the Bible says some things, and, well, I'm going to read you a psalm. I'm going to read you a proverb, a parable that Jesus said. And you'll understand what I mean. Here's what Jesus said. He's talking to his disciples. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. Here's what it is identifying. The master goes to a wedding feast, okay? Master goes to a wedding feast. Macy is in charge. And she then is responsible to get things to us while the master is away. And it's going to describe um, what happens if, and it says, you know, Macy, so I'll tell you what, if the master goes away, um, make sure you give them what I want you to give them in time. Okay, and so Macy, hopefully she'll be able to be diligent. She probably would be. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. So when I come back, I see Macy's awake, and that's we said, blessed are those. Truly, truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and never recline at table and will come and serve them. You see what he's saying? So if Macy is responsible and responsive to do, now I will serve you. You serve them, and I serve you as the master of the house. Um, If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants, but know this, and listen to what it says. It's going to get a little bit rough. That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, 
he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Jesus is going to go on, but then Peter asks a question. Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And what Peter is doing, he's distinguishing between the stewards and the servants. He's saying, hey, time, Jesus, is this, you know, this thing you're talking about, stay awake and all this stuff, are you saying this to everyone in general, or are you talking to us in particular? And listen to what Jesus said. Jesus goes on. And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise manager, steward, whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. So if the steward is faithful, the steward gets rewarded. Again, he has added responsibility, but there's, there's added opportunities. But now listen to what it says. If the, ma- if the steward falls asleep on the job, but if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. You ready for this? And will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will would receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone, oh, that's good news. You know, severe beating, a light beating. Oh, thank God, it's only a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Is he saying this to everyone or to some? Is he speaking to all servants or stewards? What's the answer? Stewards. Stewards have added responsibility. Biblically, who are those stewards? The first responders to the gospel, Jewish Christians, they were the stewards. To whom God gave messages and dispatched them as messengers into the Roman Empire. Um, This letter... This letter to the Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians. They were the first responders to the gospel. They functioned as jars of clay to transmit good news to Gentiles. Stewards, in being God's messengers to channel the good news, they were subject to pain. Ask any woman who was ever given birth. Those who reproduce life experience pain in doing so. Those to and through whom God shines light pay a price in so doing. And in the history of the Bible and God's revelation, the primary individuals who have been the stewards have been Jews. And Jewish Christians, our older brothers, the ones who were pulled from the bulk of Judaism to understand the new covenant, to go into the Roman Empire so that we would understand the message. That's what the Bible indicates, and um, that's those were the messengers. 
at least in the first century, and that's what the writer is referring to. Let's talk about the mission. So what was the mission? What it says in Hebrews 2.14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who holds, who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death was subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus voluntarily took upon himself something we involuntarily share in. We share in flesh and blood. You didn't have that choice. You were born, you were flesh and blood. Jesus had a choice. He partook of flesh and blood so that he could do two things. What was Jesus' mission? To do two things. Destroy and deliver. We've got to understand, what did he destroy and who did he deliver? And that's this text will, it's pointing out, what did Jesus come to do? He came to destroy. It says, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. This word destroy, uh, I found a definition. It seems important to me. Here's what, destroy Non-physical destruction by means of a greater power coming in to replace the power previously in effect. Destroy is not assassinate. It's when there is a person in power, one with greater power, comes and replaces this one. How does this work here? Um, what it seems to be indicating, we've talked about this. The old covenant was God's proclamation through angels. God spoke it, right? The only thing that can trump a divine edict is another divine edict, one with greater power. That's the only thing that can override the old one. And that's exactly what happened. Angels from they proclaimed the Old Covenant. It had power. Jesus proclaimed the New Covenant. It has greater power. When it says that Jesus destroyed him who holds the power of death, well, what does that mean? Look what it says. The Old Covenant is associated with commitments, commandments, and consequences. The consequences have curses and blessings. It's rough. Have you read through the Old Testament? What happens if you step out of line? Have you read that? You ever, you, ever, you ever wonder, reading some of the stories in the Old Testament, holy smokes, this is this is not very nice. What is God mean? No. He, God is a God who keeps covenants. He kept the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant is different. Here's the way Paul describes the covenant from Mount Sinai. We've talked about this, but it's important for us to understand the fear of death. Where does that come from? This is Mount Sinai. And in describing the covenant that was made through Moses, here's the words that Paul uses to describe this covenant. And it's important. Here's the first. It's called the ministry of death. The Old Covenant 
didn't produce spiritual life. It produced spiritual death. It's also called the ministry of condemnation. When it says Jesus destroyed that which hold the power of death and free those all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death, the fear of death is not just describing the point at which we will no longer live. It describes a spiritual reality. When you're under this covenant, there is automatically a fear of death. It doesn't lead towards life. Now, again, this, I'm not saying this is bad. God declared this, but this was not his final word, right? What is it that can override this? This can override that. And this is what's important to us. When Jesus destroys, he's setting aside something with power and replacing it with something with greater power. Now, what is this covenant associated with? Do you remember what the old one was? A ministry of? And a ministry of? What's this one? It's called the ministry of the Spirit and the ministry of righteousness. This has replaced that. That's why Jesus comes. So at the cross, he can rescind the old covenant and replace it with the new. Is that good news? It is. We get this sense that God is kind of a mixture of old and new. You take some of the old covenant, you mix it in the new, put it in the blender, and just kind of... No. No, they can't both exist. Jesus came to destroy, to replace the old with something new. Um, says the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. This is what happened at the cross. Look what it says in Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The passage describes how God has forgiven us all our trespasses. How does that work? How does God forgive our sins? Our trespasses. A trespass is a conscious disobedience of a divine command. It's when God says, thou shalt not, and you do. Or God says, thou shalt, and you do not. It's a transgression. It's a sin. How does God forgive our transgressions? This passage describes two things that he does. The first has to do with the record of debt. The record of debt. What a record of debt is, it's, it's kind of a rap sheet. Somebody who has a rap sheet, they've been indicted for crimes. There's a record of their crimes. That's what this thing is like. It's picture a piece of vellum or papyrus 
the type of material paper that existed at the time, and on it there is a record of infractions, transgressions of the covenant, adultery, and not just committing an act, lust, adultery, not keeping holy the Lord's day, stealing, killing, dealing falsely, coveting your neighbor's goods, coveting your neighbor's life. Indictment, transgression, 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 transgression. All read out. That's a record of debt. How many have a record of debt? All do. We all have a record. So how does that get cleansed? What does he do with that? And here's what it describes. God erases the entries. That's the image here. It, what you did with this, it was water-soluble, so if you had this piece of vellum, what you do is you wipe it out. You kind of pour water on it, and then it's, it's clean. And what Jesus did, what, what it says here, is that he canceled the ret, the, the, the indictment, and nailed it to the cross. Your indictment. There's nothing on it. Those things that you've done, erased. That's what he did. He had to deal with the record of debt to forgive. That's what he did. That's what the passage indicates. He didn't just do that, though. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Um, It says he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Rulers and authorities are spiritual beings. They are lawmen. They aren't evil. They're charged with administering old covenant law. They're obligated to hold commandment violators responsible. That's what rulers and authorities, they're those God dispatches to, okay, go find the people who are guilty and Deal with them accordingly. Um, Those who have records of debt are their responsibilities. These unembodied spirit beings are not merciful. You know what it's talking about? Angels. And if an angel comes to you and wants to settle the score, you're not in a real good spot. Angels are warriors. They're not capable of sympathy. Here's what it says. Behold, I send an angel before you to guide you on the way. Bring you to the place. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Don't rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, um, for my name is in him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, if these spiritual beings are lawmen, they have to wield something that can create fear. And to those of us who have a record of debt, all they have to do, you know what they have to do, especially in the first part, wave this. You're in a heap of trouble. Have you ever read the first 39 books of the Old Testament? What happens when people do things? This one guy, remember the guy who just touched the tabernacle? Just touched it. Struck dead. All kinds of people, well, 
Only two made it through the wilderness. And the rest, millions, died in the wilderness. So well, I'm not trying to be scary here. But we need to be clear, don't we? What happened at the cross? He wipes out our certificate of debt when it says he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He took out of their hand that which they used to terrorize. And you know what that was? That. That is what was used. And how is it that something like this can be set aside? Do you remember the word? This needs to be destroyed. Destroyed. It doesn't mean torn up. It needs to be overridden by something with greater authority and greater power. That's the new covenant. That's what Jesus did at the cross. He caused this to be rescinded so that this could be inaugurated. Is that good news? Holy smokes, if you have a certificate of debt, this is really good news. That he wipes the slate, deactivates the lawmen. You know what? I tell you something. We are in a really good spot. It's not that you haven't sinned. He's wiped it clean. Those who will be dispatched to deal with lawbreakers, your name is not on their cell phone. They don't have to deal with you. You say, Mike, so what do I need to do with all this? What do you need to do with all this? What do you need to do with all this? You know what you need to do? Believe it. You need to know it and believe it. Do you believe this? When God looks at you, he doesn't see the certificate of debt. Do you believe that? Again, you're saying, and if you're honest with me, say, yeah, Mike, yeah, 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 I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't. I understand that. I understand that. That's what he wants us to believe. And as you believe it, as it sinks down deeper into your mind, it will change you. It will change you. It doesn't happen right away, though, does it? It takes time, because you don't hear this stuff everywhere. Um, you know what it says? He put them to open shame. You know what happened? When you were a conquering general, here's what you do. You would ride in the chariot, and you would lead the overturned powers in a procession. So, if I am the conquering general, I know, okay, bear with me. I know that's difficult to understand. That's a difficult. So, I am the conquering general, and in this it's Jesus. And so, those who are led in his procession are those whose authority he has removed. Here's a question. See how sharp you are. I want you to think of Jesus, and he's walking. And we're really glad that he's in the chariot in front. Here's the question. Who's being led? Who are the conquered ones? 
Anybody want to give that a shot? Who are the conquered ones? Are they people? Bad people. What's that? They're angels. They're angels. It's not that they're bad. It's that their authority has been stripped away by the one who, and that's how our trespasses are forgiven. There's no one coming after you. And there's nothing for them to charge you with because he wiped it out. And you know what our part is? To believe it. To understand that that's what happened at the cross. And to believe it. It makes a difference, doesn't it? When you understand this, it leads to, well, look what it says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he partook of the same that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that's the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery, were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy and deliver. The fear of death causes us to become spiritual slaves. When you feel he's going to bless my obedience and curse my disobedience, you know what you end up becoming? A slave. And you, because a slave has no permanent place in the family. If a slave steps out of line, they can and were banished. They just kicked out of the family. If you were a slave, you had no permanent place in the family. How about if you're a son or daughter? Can you be kicked out of the family because you transgress a rule? No, you can't. That's the difference between fear and love, between being a slave. Well, look what it says in Romans 8.15, the last verse. You did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. There's two spirits that fuel religious devotion. There's a spirit of slavery and a spirit of sonship. A spirit of slavery leads to fear. It's what happens when you believe that this is how things are. It leads to a spirit of slavery unto fear. You end up trying to obey because you're afraid not to. If you receive a spirit of adoption as sons, you're running by that operating system, and you're not afraid you're going to be kicked out of the family. In fact, what you begin to understand, nothing can cause him to turn to turn me away. He will never cast me adrift, never leave me behind. Um, so I get a question. Pretty easy to go from here to here, right? It's not that easy. John Wesley was a um, missionary to the United States. And he ended up, he was very devout. Bible knowledge, an evangelist. He was a missionary and came to the United States to convert us. Here's what he says. When he was on his way back, he said, I who went to America to convert others was never myself converted to God. What ends up happening, he ended up understanding this. And this is what he said. I had, even then, the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. I had, even then, 
the faith of a servant, but not that of a son. This promotes the faith of a servant. This promotes the faith of a son. You can do a lot of things because you're frightened. But it will not be Jesus who's doing that. That's not how he fuels religious energy. Uh, what it says, we're almost done. Surely, look what it says in verse 16. Surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps, takes hold of the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. What Jesus provides is something that angels can't provide. Anybody understand what that might be? You're going to get something very surprising from Jesus. It's critical. Sympathy. Angels are incapable of sympathy. Jesus is. He was an embodied spirit being. And how then do we go from a spirit of slavery to a spirit of sonship? I'm going to say two things. Number one, covenant clarity and Find a place where someone speaks for God. Again, there's places. Someone who speaks for God will need to understand the difference between this and this. This is what angels declared. Angels no longer speak for God. This is what Jesus declared. He does speak for God. Find a place, and if you find confusion, stop listening. We're all in process. So what I'd say, keep coming back. Is this the only place? No. But this is a place you'll hear it week after week after week, because as far as I'm concerned, this is it. This is not just a nice little thing. This is it. What is God saying to us? Really, do you understand what I'm saying? Does he say, obey me and I'll bless you, disobey me and I'll curse you? He's not saying that. But that's reflected as if he is saying it, and he's not. He's not. What is he saying? I'll put my law on your minds and write it on your, write it on your hearts. I'll be your God, you'll be my son and daughter. I'm, I'm going to... Be Helios, non-reactive to your unrighteousness, and I'm not going to remember your sin anymore because I already wiped it out. And he would have us, he would have us understand that. There's another thing you might do. We're going to do a seminar at the end of September, and it really focuses on how do you get in touch with Jesus' sympathy and the Father's sovereignty. So if I'm going to point that out at the end of September, we're going to take the morning and talk about it. And if that's something that you're available to, um, come to that, but keep coming back. Brett, come on up. We're going to sing a closing song. Let me pray for us. Father, we, you speak 
words to us. Reveal yourself. And you've done so in different ways at different times and through different messengers. You have addressed us via angels and via your son. And they told us different things. And we get confused. You understand that. I'd ask that we would continue as we think about Jesus and why he came, that we would be clearer as time goes on, would understand that he came to destroy so that we would no longer be fueled by the fear of death. He came to deliver so that we might be transferred from having the faith of servants to having the faith of sons. And we're not all where we want to be. We're in process. Where we will go, though, we will head in that direction. Where we understand your love more deeply, that's the direction that will allow us to be Christ-like. I pray that we would make steady progress in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen.